Hey, Simona, it's Alex. I uh, woke up thinking my dog must have done something really bad because I heard my wife's bad dog voice downstairs. And I sort of lazily wandered downstairs in my pajamas to find her bear spraying a bear on our deck, just hosing it down. And uh, it ran off. And she walked inside and wiped her hands and made a cup of tea. Anyway, uh, talk soon. Bye. This is A Hostile Climate, a show about the ways we can think about and adapt to life on our ever-changing planet. Understanding what we can do about climate change is not just about taking the temperature. Here, we're asking what a shifting climate means for us and how we can live in a new normal. And that's where philosophy can help. On this show, we are two environmental philosophers exploring the values and passions behind climate change science, policy, and problem solving. I'm Alex Lee. I live in Alaska, where I write, ski, climb, hike, fish, walk my dogs, teach philosophy, and study moral obligations and environmental change as a professor at Alaska Pacific University. And I'm Simona Capizani. I'm a Southern Californian who's a researcher at Princeton University and soon to be professor of environmental philosophy at Durham University in the UK. When I'm not reading and writing about moral and political philosophy and climate change, you usually can find me surfing or hiking with my dog, Athena. We both think a lot about climate change. Too much? Yes, probably way too much. So we decided to make a show about it. Every episode, we take on a concept that philosophy can help us work through by checking in with interesting people, sharing stories about climate change, and diving into the messy work of philosophy. But we're not just going to sit around overthinking everything from the armchair, like the uh, typical tweed jacket-wearing, pipe-in-hand professors, right? Uh, yeah, no, 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 I hope not. Let's actually go outside to work through the ethics of environmental change. Just so you know, I'm not a strong swimmer. I'm going to be okay, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know, Alex. You might find yourself in some unfamiliar waters, but worry not. I am a lifeguard. I mean, we're both going to be finding ourselves in unfamiliar territory. Like, maybe I'll actually experience cold for the first time. But as, as you and I at least both know, philosophers uh, thrive in a little bit of discomfort, and we know that getting out of our comfort zone helps us grow a bit. So... As we have the tough conversations, sometimes in unfamiliar places, we throw ourselves into the fray to explore together why people care about climate change and how people experience a changing world. Episode 1, Uncertainty. Today we talk to an environmental writer and a scientist about how uncertainty holds us back, but also gives us an opportunity to move forward in tackling climate change. So, Simona... Why is it hard to do something about climate change? Uh, well, uncertainty has something to do with it. I mean, we know that the world is getting hotter. We know that climate's getting weirder. We definitely know that fossil fuels are the leading cause. And we know that if we keep using this current existing fossil fuel infrastructure, we're going to exceed the 1.5 degree of warming that has been our target established by the Paris Climate Agreement. And yet, at the same time, if we're going to try to change how we live, people usually want to know that what they're doing is actually going to make a difference. And given that we can't always be 100% certain on how we can best affect the future, uh, you know, we have some challenges. So we know that models have to be idealized. Some uncertainty is always going to persist in our planning. And we aren't always certain about exactly how those changes are unfolding in front of us. Yeah, but hang on a second. This really isn't that controversial an issue anymore, right? People agree that climate change is a problem. Um, so doesn't uncertainty just keep us from moving forward? I mean, yeah, totally, exactly. Un uncertainty makes many of us feel paralyzed, uh, apathetic, or honestly just plain confused. So it sounds like our first topic should be uncertainty. 
Yeah, definitely. Wait, but okay, hold on, Alex. Before we get there, what does a bear on your deck have to do with this episode? Okay, no pun intended, but bear with me for a minute. Uh, so <laughs> this episode's about uncertainty, and the way I see it, there's two ways we might move forward uh, in the face of uncertainty, right? We can get more information, or we can learn to live in an uncertain world. Now, uh, uncertainty can make us vulnerable or stuck, but there's also some some positive opportunity there, too. Uh, now, where I live is... is part of what we call the wildland urban interface or the WUI. It's, it's the fastest growing land use type in the country. Uh, we, we increase the WUI by about 2 million acres a year. And it's that zone where we hear a lot uh, about vulnerability from things like wildfires uh, and also where we have increased interactions between people and, and wildlife. Uh, now that's really scary and creates a lot of really important uh, uh, challenges um, and, and very real problems. Uh, but one of the things I most love about living here in Alaska and, and living at that interface is the way nature sort of shows up in my life, uh, like, like having a bear on the deck. Um, now, I have to be more deliberate in how I interact with nature, or, or in this case, my wife had to interact with nature. <laughs> uh, but there's also a constructive relationship uh, that's existing there. Yeah, so it sounds like there actually is opportunity and uncertainty then. You know, Alex, this is reminding me of something, actually. I just had a conversation with Elizabeth Colbert because she was here visiting Princeton. So you know Colbert, Pulitzer Prize winner, writer for The New Yorker, author of the national bestseller, The Sixth Extinction. Her most recent book was currently recommended by Obama under a white sky. So she was here to chat about that to the Princeton community, and I got a little opportunity to sit down with her. And some of the things she said, I think, is echoing what you're just mentioning to me now. Well, what'd she have to say? Well, let me have her tell you. I suppose the good news is there's a certain amount of uncertainty. Um, and the bad news is that there's a certain amount of uncertainty. Yeah. And I think that it's just yet another reason really why this is such a difficult political issue to deal with because you cannot, you know, sort of guarantee people if we do X, you know, Y will happen because there is a very dramatic range of uncertainty. People keep saying, well, this is a disastrous threshold to cross. We're going to cross that disastrous threshold. And then what happens? And so, you know, we've gotten ourselves into a little bit of a bind. You know, we're a very instant gratification society. And something mm -hmm. that happens even next year. Now, if you're talking about something the impacts of which will not be fully felt for 30 years yeah. and the real ramifications of which may last thousands of years. We've proven ourselves just completely incapable of dealing with that. You know, Elizabeth Colbert's really getting at the heart of why it's so hard to do anything about climate change, because uh, we just don't know which way these uncertainties are going to cut, right? So we get stuck feeling like, ah, oh, I just, I don't know what to do. Yeah, so, I mean, this kind of bums me out, right? Or it makes me feel a little bit pessimistic about what we can achieve. You know, to my mind, I actually think we do know enough to act. Yeah, I, I think we do, or at the very least, it's fine to not know some things, right? Um, uh, you know, I, I think we both know somebody who can help us dig a little deeper on uncertainty and, and talk through this tension. So Alex, I'm super excited today to talk to Emma Maris about how we can better understand our relationship to the non-human world in the face of a changing climate. So Emma's a nonfiction writer. She writes for places like The Atlantic, The New York Times, National Geographic, and her most recent book, Wild Souls, Freedom and Flourishing in the Non-Human World, raises a number of philosophical questions about climate justice, conservation, and the nature of wildness. So Emma's writing asks us how wildness can survive on a planet that humans have so completely altered. 
seems like we can constrain uncertainty, but we really can't avoid it. And I'm really excited to talk to Emma about how she thinks we might move forward uh, in the face of an uncertain future. All righty, shall we start? No, I'm ready for it. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We're really excited to chat with you. We've been talking a lot about how climate change is an inherently uncertain problem. We wanted to get your big picture take on if you think we need more information right now, because that seems to be what a lot of the climate change conversation focuses on. More stats, more figures, more precise. But we're still not doing a lot of the stuff that maybe we need to do, even as we learn more. Yeah, uh, we don't need to learn anything more uh, at this point. I mean, that's not true. There are certain people in certain roles in society that definitely need to learn more. You know, people who are working on particular technological problems, people trying to get us carbon neutral air flight, certain issues like that. But for most of us who are not making a lot of really technical decisions on a day-to-day basis, we have enough information. In fact, when the most recent IPCC report came out, my advice to people who are already engaged in climate change was not to read it because it was just going to send everybody spiraling and the basics are the same. The planet is warming. It's because of fossil fuels. We need to stop burning fossil fuels. The end. Uh, I mean, it's not actually that complicated. Now, additional information about potential solutions, new approaches, mitigation, adaptation, all that stuff. Like I, I read those articles. I would recommend people read those articles. But a new thing about a glacier melting or a new IPCC report, if you think that it's going to make you feel shitty, then don't read it. Yeah, we don't need to keep stacking on the pile necessarily more information about glaciers, but we do want to talk about the problem of political inaction. That's really where a redistributed focus ought to be. All environmental problems are human behavior issues. They're not about the science of the non-human world. They're about the way that human beings interact with it. So I think paying attention to the, all the, that new research and development is really important. But I, again, I think that for your average citizen, if you have either the mental bandwidth or the time in your schedule for X amount of climate change hours, let's say two hours a week before your brain is fried or you run out of time, or you need to pick up the kids from school, whatever, I would spend 90% of that two hours a week on action, on trying to change things. It really is the time for action. One of the problems, I guess, that sometimes people face when trying to move to action is that they say we don't know enough. And well, we're not sure exactly how the world's going to unfold. So if we don't need more information, then what do you think the strategies are for moving towards action in the face of those uncertainties? Well, I think you got to divide people who call for more information into the good faith people and the bad faith people. You know, for the good faith people, you know, I'd say, yes, from where we stand in time, there's a kind of a cone of possibilities radiating out. And the further forward we get in time, the larger that cone of possibilities is. And for any given parts per billion of uh, carbon, you know, there's better and worse possible futures. But There's one very simple relationship, and that is the more greenhouse gases are in the atmosphere, the worse things are. And so if we were already doing a lot about climate change politically, if there was a robust policy response and we were arguing on the margins about whether we should be investing more in electrification or more in fire mitigation in the West, then that would be a conversation that maybe we would need a lot of more technical expertise. But we're still at a very basic place in terms of our response the sort of level of understanding that we need to call for a much more robust response is there. We have the data to call for that. Um, For the bad faith actors, I I don't talk to bad faith actors anymore. There's no point. Just ignore them and get them out of power. 
I feel like there was this sort of momentum, both about talking about climate change in the context of political action. You know, around 2018, 2019, we've seen, you know, the presence of the youth climate movement as taking up a lot of space in the sort of media ecosystem. And then like, bam, you get pandemic. Now we have the war in Ukraine. I'm wondering whether you think that kind of attention is hard to maintain, whether you find it difficult to maintain in the public writing that you're doing and sort of what you think about that shifting attention issue. That's a really good question, one I've thought about a lot recently. Because as you say, there was this moment where we felt like we were going to break through. And then that moment passed for various reasons. Something like 68% of people around the world are very worried about climate change. Like think that it is a major issue for their own nation wherever they live. So that shows you that a robust majority of people care about climate change, which means that if power was equally distributed, we would be doing tons about climate change. The fact that we are not is in fact evidence of a completely unequal distribution of power. And so I'm increasingly seeing climate change as just one manifestation of this unequal distribution of power that also leads to things like systemic racism and economic inequality and the crisis of houselessness and addiction. Like it's all the same thing. And so the more that we integrate the climate movement into these other movements for justice and become one force demanding a more just society more broadly, then we don't have to fight against other social issues that are also super important. And we can be much more impactful because we can all work together towards these common goals. It's so hard in these conversations, I think, to get folks to parse apart what's happening from what we should do about it. And that tension seems to be at the heart of what you're talking about. Yeah, well, it's just, it is scary to realize that there is no right answer for how we should create the future. But then it can also be exciting, right? Like, this means that we get to come together and and like create a future that might be better than the present that we live in today and it might be better than the past that our parents and grandparents lived in. We're not beholden to the versions of reality. We don't have to like flip through the lookbook of the past 250 years and find the setup we like. We get to make it what we want. And I just want to make it clear, though, that that doesn't mean that it's sort of ethically chill to drive species extinct because we don't feel like we need them. I still do think that diversity itself is valuable. Um, but I also think that protecting that diversity is going to mean managing the land and the sea and the freshwater in weird ways in the future in order to save stuff that will be unfamiliar looking. And there will be some changes we can't control. We're acting like we can just sort of magically manage any piece of land or ocean to whatever ecosystem state we desire. Like, look, if we could manage ecosystems, why are there still like over 5 million rats in New York City, right? Like we cannot control nature. Nature is too smart for us. So, I mean, ultimately what I think this big cultural shift in the sort of conservation world is all about is about moving away from that human nature duality and towards a more integrated model. And it's not about going back to the past and sort of removing moving humans from the ecosystem, like excising ourselves like a tumor. It's about fixing our relationship to other species so that we can all coexist. I have a real fear that like people just don't do well with trade-offs and people will say like, well, sure. Yeah, I want all these things, but like I'm more than that. I really want to be able to use um, plastic water bottles and I really want to be able to eat at McDonald's and I really want to be able to drive my car. But Alex, do you think that's like a false narrative that got started because the environmental movement from the onset was this messaging about sacrifice? Because if you think, you know, old school ways of this conversation. It was always about, well, what are you willing to give up? I do think that the overemphasis on sacrifice, renunciation, is a huge barrier to people entering any kind of environmental movements. Massive. And not just that, but like almost the aesthetic of it, right? Like I, like, I remember growing up watching 
Star Trek The Next Generation. And like anytime they would ever go to any planet where people were like eco-friendly or socialistic, they were all wearing like brown tunics, you know, like if you got the neon clothes, it was always like the capitalistic hierarchical planet. So like what I propose is neon clothes on the socialistic planet. Like that's the future that I want. And I think it's possible. Like let's use fast fashion as an example, because I have a lot of guilt feelings around clothes because I love clothes and I love buying new clothes. and I love fashion, but the fashion industry is wildly environmentally destructive. And in the past, the only sort of eco fashion that was available was extremely expensive. And the kind of model that we were given was, it'll be like the 50s. You'll buy like one dress a year and that'll be it. And it'll be like handmade and everything will be like crocheted and earth tones and vegetable dyes. And I'm just like, no, that's actually not what I want. But what if we have printers in our house and we just, we print out a dress. So we print out some leggings and then when they wear out, we like feed it back into the hopper and we reprint out another thing. Right. Like what if eco fashion is faster than H&M? Ultimately, the think the futures that we can imagine do not have to be renunciatory or earth toned in any way. We want to make sure we have a chance to ask if you want to share anything about what you have coming down the pipeline. New work in the works. We're super excited to hear about new work. So, yeah. The next thing I'm working on is still very early phases, but I will say that it has a lot to do with the conversation that we had today. It's it's all about what do I as a person who's busy and has a job and has a family and has obligations, what do I do about climate change so that I don't feel like guilty all the day every day? Uh, which is a place that I myself was living in not too long ago. And I'll I'll give you the spoiler alert, which is that the cure for eco-anxiety is doing something and doing something collectively and, and, and trying, you know, not, not worrying about my own footprint, but going after the sort of the power distribution problem. My model for this project is Mary Kondo's The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. I want it to be something that like gives people that sense of like full body calm that she was able to give people and that also makes them take action in the way that she was able to get people to take action. Like I changed the way I fold clothes forever, thanks to her. And so what I want my book to do is to change the way that people lead their lives by shifting from a consumer mindset to a citizen mindset. I remember when it was like 2011 that I was wanting a new handbag and I spent like four hours on the internet trying to find like the most eco-friendly possible handbag. And then I was like, wow, I could have gone to a city council meeting with that four hours and like fought for denser zoning. So that was like my kind of aha moment. I think this this gets back to our very, like exactly where we started, that in the face of uncertainty, maybe one of the strategies we need is that like people need to stop trying to optimize. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it took me so many years to Alex to like have that realization that you just verbalized. In fact, I still like I'm still trying to talk myself out of trying to optimize because the quest for the optimal leads to paralysis. The perfect becomes the enemy of the good. The only way to get through this is just to throw ourselves at it and figure it out as we do it. And do it together with others, right? And negotiate all the messiness that comes with that. The metaphor that I've been using is, is imagine that you're trying to get like a huge wad of like sticks and branches through a doorway, right? So like you could 
take a 3D picture of the stick structure and then like analyze it and then like have a computer algorithm to figure out like which stick to move first and then or like you could get like five guys and you could all shove on it at the same time and then it would go through and like that's that's kind of the visual image that I have about where we are and what we need to be doing like get in there and shove Coming up, we digest the conversation we had with Emma. And we're back. I hear this argument a lot. People argue that things like the Green New Deal or any kind of wider social justice agenda is actually going to undermine decarbonization efforts. And this argument is not just coming from the folks that you would suspect that are trying to stall climate action. It's also coming from good faith actors that say that if we're focusing on issues of justice, that'll just slow things down. I thought it was really interesting that Emma just said, like, she stopped talking to the bad faith arguers. And it actually changed how I kind of think about bad faith arguments a little bit. Um, One way to think about them is that they are baking uncertainty in to the argument in order to weaponize uncertainty against action. I like Emma's arguments about not talking to bad faith actors. That's kind of how I have to move through the world these days in order to survive. (laughs) But um, there is the problem that there are people that are committed, right? And I'm thinking of some of the climate scientists I've engaged with in my time in, in some of the academic circles that maybe are less familiar with sort of philosophy and these arguments. And they really still resist wanting to talk about climate justice for these kinds of concerns. But for the most part, they've dedicated their life's work, right, towards, you know, trying to work towards mitigation and also towards adaptation. And so I actually find it pretty alarming to be encountering folks that want to move forward and say, well, let's just do the climate action decarbonization stuff first, and we'll worry about the justice stuff later, the social inequality later. And luckily, right, there's some now recent work that I'm sending to some of these folks that I have conversations with. There was a recent article published by Fergus Green and Noel Healy about how inequality is actually fueling climate change, right? So they actually do make quantifiable arguments, right? Not just the normative arguments that we're making in in the philosophy side of things about if you are not addressing the social injustice components of it, you're not addressing climate change. In fact, you're making it worse. Well, and this is a classic idea in environmental ethics, right? So going back to the number of philosophers from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the idea that to understand environmental change, you have to understand sort of our relationship with society. And to understand environmental degradation, you have to understand hierarchies in society. That's led to a lot of tools for managing these problems. Right. And to bring the more contemporary arguments that I find to be really helpful, some of the work like uh, Olufemi Otaiwa is doing in his recent book, Reconsidering Reparations, about looking at the kind of climate work we're doing uh, in a reparative frame that is actually constructive, right? And also asking ourselves the question of what kind of, uh, you know, ancestors we want to be and look at these kinds of, you know, largely structural and historical inequalities and wrongs and the way that that kind of power has been distributed. So I think a lot of people, like, they hear this and they're, maybe fear's the wrong word, but it it sounds pessimistic. It sounds like, oh my God, well now you're just saying that, like, this is really about inequality in society. How hard is that to solve? But 
Emma very much sounded like she finds hope in this, and I kind of do too. This point brings up that we ought to think about hope maybe in, in two different ways. So, you know, apologies for doing the philosophy distinction making here, but you have this sort of uh, kind of hope that I think emerges from techno-fatalism. Like, we're just going to get there with the technology. It's going to save us. You know, we, we're really smart. We're going to get there. Sit back and buckle up. <laughs> buckle up, buttercup. <laughs> so that kind of hope I find to be problematic, right? I find it to be what I like to call toxic hope, a kind of passive or wishful alternative. And I think that if we're going to lean into hope, if we want to try to lean into acting, I really like the concept from uh, Dr. Ashley Consolo. She has this notion of gritty hope, right? And that is this kind of more active conception of hope that emerges when we're directly acknowledging what we're experiencing or what has been experienced, identifying the kinds of things that need to be done, and engaging creatively in action. And what better way to do those sorts of things in types and forms of collective action? taking that kind of active role, you know, Emma was mentioning. Yeah, it avoids this, like, superhero mentality that some other hero is going to come along and, and do it for us. It's like, no, technology only works if we implement it and we use it correctly and we find ways of integrating it into our lives productively. No one's coming to save us but ourselves. <laughs> We're the heroes we've been waiting for. I find a lot of encouragement in that as educators, there's already a kind of presumption from our students coming in at this generation of students, you know, not to generalize about Gen Z, but there seems to already be a sort of understanding about these points of interconnection and a sort of demand that we are speaking to that when we're engaging and teaching about these sorts of things. That's interesting. Like, Emma really stressed how other social problems are part of climate change, right? And how, okay, if you're involved in labor rights, then you're doing climate work, right? Um I actually think with my students, more often I have to convince them the opposite, that like they're very concerned about um, major social movements, mm. and I need to convince them that climate change is part of that. Oh, interesting. So I think there's a weird thing going on here. So there's a well-known cognitive bias, the availability heuristic, right? And like the, the basic gist is that the more familiar you are with an occurrence, the more likely you are to basically overestimate its prevalence. So in the wake of high-profile plane crashes, people are more likely to drive instead of fly, even though driving is statistically more dangerous than flying. I think there's sort of an unavailability heuristic going on with climate change where we're constantly bombarded with, like, we're all going to die and all the animals are going to go extinct and everything's going to be awful. And then, like, a year goes by and you're like, well, I'm still here. Uh, maybe we're okay, right? Like, we have a hard time reconciling these long-term, large-scale, really harmful shifts. One of the oldest theories of knowledge that goes back to Plato and Socrates is roughly that in order to know something, you need to have a justified true belief. And the middle word is the sticky one there. This idea that in order to know it, it needs to be true, that there's some relationship between truth and knowledge is sort of the big root of these epistemic challenges, that if we can't show it to be true, then we can't know it. So if modelers come up and say, like, well, there's some confidence interval we have about what the future is going to look like, or we're pretty sure that this is the path we're on, that's not truth. I've been talking to modelers here at Princeton who are keen on having philosophers help with putting in normative assumptions or at least identifying where they're coming up in the models in order to at least make the sort of idealizations a little bit more tangible. I actually think that this is something that there's been a lot of cognitive science research on. So I know that Daniel Kahneman, the, he's a Nobel Prize winning economist, did some work on this. Basically, we can't conceptualize probabilistic reasoning when things are at a big scale. The machinery of our brains doesn't work at conceptualizing it. And climate change is a really big scale problem. 
I look around Alaska and some other mountain communities I'm familiar with, like in Colorado, there's a lot of houses that are in places where there could potentially be avalanches. But if they haven't happened in the last 40 years, when the vast majority of development in the American West has occurred, we tend to say like, well, we'll be okay. It's a low probability event. And if you think about a low probability event, a one in a hundred event, like a hundred year avalanche or a flood or a fire, we conceptualize as a low probability event. But if I said one out of every hundred M&Ms would kill you, you would never eat an M&M, ever, right? Like you just wouldn't accept that level of risk. Simona, I'm, I'm getting a bit antsy. Wait, does this mean, Alex, this is the part where we get to go outside? Maybe uh, touch did, some grass? <laughs> you did promise we'd get to touch some grass, as the kids yeah. say. All right, well, in order oh. to do that, we gotta, we got to take the jacket off, right? All right. <laughs> take All take right. the armchair Th- with us? <laughs> throw off the tweed. Um, yeah, let's go. Every, every episode, we're going to take a field trip. We'll share stories from the field, thoughts from our daily lives, and current events. Um, this week, we wanted to get a scientist's take on uncertainty. So, Alex, where did you go this week? Well, so yesterday, I went on a ski trip with Roman Dial. Uh, Roman is a noted adventurer. He's a pioneering pack rafter and climber and wanderer of wild places, especially around Alaska. He also happens to be a colleague of mine here at Alaska Pacific University, where he's a professor of mathematics and biology and an environmental scientist who studies climate change in the far north. Emma said we don't need to know any more about mountain glaciers and that sort of thing. Uh, we headed into the Chugach Mountains outside of Anchorage and checked out some of the receding glaciers and new ecosystems that are popping up around them. So the water you hear in the background is actually the glacier we're standing on melting. The glacier was here in the 50s, mid-50s, and now it's pulled back, I don't know, at least you know, half a mile or a quarter mile up glacier. But here it was, it extended down from where we were 50 years ago and, and now there's trees moving in and there's you know there's some hemlock trees and there's three or four spruce trees right below us so um, and relatively quickly these trees have moved in into this rubble where you wouldn't really think trees should grow in fact we're walking past mountain goat sign mountain goat trails and mountain goat fur wow the changes i've seen on the glaciers around alaska is the first one i noted is that they disappeared from the maps. So the maps would say that we should be walking or skiing on a glacier, but there was no ice anymore. You know, I studied ice worms and snow algae and helped glaciologists on the Aklutna Glacier, which is near Anchorage. And that glacier has retreated so far back that it's hazardous to get up on the glacier now. There's a deep gorge that used to be buried by ice. And these changes have happened relatively recently, like in the last 15 years. It's, they've gone from, you know, glacier to no glacier. One of my collaborators hiked up to the Milk Glacier where we are in, I think in 2000 or 2001, and he found iceworms here. And iceworms are these little relatives of the earthworm. They look like a little earthworm under a microscope, a little black earthworm, and their organs are even black. Their whole being is black so that they can absorb any light and uh, help warm them up. And they actually only live on glaciers. And ironically, you can kill an ice worm by freezing it. Now there are no ice worms. And the reason there's no ice worms is all of the snow that falls on this glacier in the winter melts all the way back to the top of the ridge between this glacier and the next glacier. And it leaves all the ice worms exposed 
to the cold temperatures that come in uh, September when we have these really clear nights and no snow has fallen yet. I'm curious as someone who seeks out places where there is a high amount of uncertainty in travel, in what's around the corner, in, you know, is there a bear? Can we cross the river here? Um, is some of the appeal that sort of the outdoors provides that we have sort of too predictable of a life outside of that? I never really thought about that, but maybe I am an unpredictability junkie. Yeah. You know, I can plan things, but they're more interesting when it's a problem to solve. Yeah. And I like doing field science because I don't think we do know everything that's going on. And it's unlimited the amount of new information you can peel out of nature. Um, so, yeah, I love the unpredictability of nature. I guess I do like, I, I like it being unpredictable, but I want to find a solution to it. I feel like there's something really neat about listening to the water drain under our feet right now. Yeah, <laughs> as this as this glacier we're standing on uh, disappears, I think that means we should get going. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Every week, we ask all our guests to tell us a bit about their favorite place and share why they care about it. This week, Elizabeth Colbert, Emma Maris, and Roman Dial shared their stories with us. I live in, it's not rural anymore, it's sort of a semi-rural part of the world. And every year, like, right around now, there's a thaw and there's a rain and all the amphibians come out. Just the other night I was out, uh, all of the salamanders were crossing the road, all of the frogs. There's still a tremendous amount of vitality there mm-hmm. and there are things that are coming back. Eagles are back, mm-hmm. turkeys are back. Um, things that you wouldn't have seen 20, 30 years ago. And so I feel very fortunate. You know, the natural world is very resilient if we yeah. gave it a chance. You know, to drive to extinction is really, um, you have to really work at it. We are really working at it. But I do derive some hope or consolation or solace or whatever from still being able to go out and see the spotted salamanders, uh, you know, as they migrate. Uh, you know, to their breeding sites every spring. The thing that just popped to mind was the morel, the springtime mushroom, because it's morel season right now. Searching for morels in the woods is an activity we've been doing a lot of and one that's really been helping us keep mentally sane uh, during some really crazy, hectic times. And the interesting thing about morels that I think about a lot when I'm out there prowling around looking for them is that they, they kind of thrive off disturbance at a certain level. So you'll often find them growing where there has been a wildfire and you'll often find them growing like in roads because the compaction of the soil of like the heavy logging equipment or just people's cars uh, can stimulate them. You know, obviously most of the morel is distributed in the soil as we saw this big fungal mass and, and the mushrooms that you, you find and take home and, and saute in butter and have with eggs for dinner last night. Mm. Um, those are just the sort of fruiting bodies. They often put up the fruiting bodies when things are getting a little uncertain. And they're like, I don't know what's going on here. Let's send out some spores and uh, start putting some bets on the next generation. So I think about that a lot when I'm out there looking that in a way, the morels that are so like nourishing and so good make me feel so connected to the earth are also a kind of a little flag of uncertainty and change out there in the environment. My favorite place that's impacted by climate change is a valley in the Brooks Range called the Cutler Valley. And the reason it's my favorite place is because it's, it is where the, the boreal forest is taking its first steps into Arctic Alaska. First 
tall shrubs moved in. At the end of the Little Ice Age, about 100 years ago, a few spruce seeds blew over this mountain range and colonized this upper basin. And now they're tall, you know, they're, you know, 30 foot tall trees. And there's now thousands of trees in there. And not only are there these spruce trees, thousands of spruce trees, there's, you know, porcupine, which are, uh, you know, a, a boreal forest species. And there's beaver. There's a spruce tree right here. And uh, I can't resist it. it. It draws me like a magnet. I want to come over here and at least get a, I got to touch it and maybe get an estimate of like maybe how old it is. I think, you know, as a scientist and as somebody who has been walking around the Brooks Range, you know, since I was a teenager, it's just, it's super exciting to be witnessing it happening right now. To wrap things up, uh, we've heard from Emma Maris that there's opportunity in uncertainty, that it can be exciting, even if we don't have all the answers, because uncertainty frees us to imagine and construct the kind of world we want to build together. Uh, We heard from Roman Dial that there's hope in uncertainty because uncertainty cuts both ways. These approaches make me more optimistic. Uh, I, I think we can learn to live with uncertainty and we can learn to move past it. But like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, there's still a lot of vulnerability that comes with uncertainty. Right, which... I think gives me an idea for our good next episode possibility of of thinking about the ways in which we can increase people's capacity to maybe plan or prepare. And we know that there's a lot of efforts towards mitigation, but maybe shifting our tensions towards adaptation. I always think that uh, what philosophy is really good at is uh, understanding arguments and clarifying questions, not providing answers. So this week, hopefully, we've uh, helped folks understand how we think about uncertainty and how we ask questions about uncertainty. So we should dive in a little deeper on what actions we might take. Next time on Hostile Climate, we're going to talk about climate adaptation. for listening to A Hostile Climate. This podcast is supported by Princeton University's Humanities Council, as well as the Climate Futures Initiative in Science, Values, and Policy, an initiative at Princeton University administered by the High Meadows Environmental Institute and co-sponsored by the University Center for Human Values. We're also supported by funding from the Alaska Humanities Forum, the Aspen Institute Citizenship and American Identity Program, and the National Endowment for the Humanities, with project support from Olivia Frankie, Conversation Programs Coordinator at the Alaska Humanities Forum. A Hostile Climate is a production of Best Case Studios. Our producer is Suzanne Myers. Our associate producer is Ashley Warren. Adam Pincus is the executive producer for Best Case. This episode was edited and mixed by Galen Mullins. Our composer is Mark Shapiro. Special thanks to Adam Amir for supporting the project and Jean Julien for our show art. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Princeton University, the CFI, HMEI, or UCHV. 